little background. Abram, Avram in Hebrew, Abram, before he became Abraham, was told by God to move. He did from one place to another. And God told him, I'm going to make a promise with you, Abram, from you, uh, great, a great nation is going to come. That was a promise made by God to uh, Abram in Genesis 12. I'll refresh your memory about it. It says, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And here it is. I will make you a great nation. So that's the promise God made to Abram. I will make you a great nation. And now... By the time we come to Genesis 16, 10 years has passed. So between Genesis 12, wherein that promise was made, to Genesis 16, which we're about to enter into, 10 years has passed. I wonder if Abram and Sarah gathered around the kitchen table on more than one occasion and just shared their hearts with one another. Maybe Abram started the conversation and said, Sarai, wasn't that a magnificent promise God made to us that will birth a son from whom a great nation will come? And Sarah would have said, oh, absolutely, great promise. Then that would have been a period of perhaps uncomfortable silence and broken by the words of one or the other. Maybe Abram would have said, wow, So now we have the promise of a son, and maybe Sarah would have chimed in and said, I know, but we don't have the son of the promise. Ten years have gone by, days have turned into weeks and weeks, months and months, years. They may be shared with one another lovingly, you know, we're not getting any younger. And they thought about their emptiness Quite a thing to be childless in those days. To be a woman who couldn't produce a child is a load in any day. Much more so in that day because the child was the guarantee of the continuation of the family and also its economic well-being. So they probably despaired and shared with one another all that had transpired. And then I wonder if they began to think, you know, maybe we could help God. Just a tad bit. Uh, I mean, indeed, he made a promise to us, so we know he's in on us being blessed. Why don't we see what we could do to usher in the blessing in advance of God? Because, you know, God gets busy. And his time schedule is just not uh, consistent with ours. And this waiting... (laughs) That's just not going to get it done because there's going to come a time when we waited too long. I mean, Sarah, you can, I don't even know if you can pull this off now and I'm getting old. And this is not going to be happening. You know what I mean? And it's not like we're striking out on our own because we have God on record. He told us he wants us to be fruitful and have a child and all this kind of stuff. So maybe we should give it some thought, help God out. We do that all the time, you know. We we know of the promises of God. He promises us to be good to us, bless us. That's what he does. He promises to bless us. So then when we live our life, we say, I don't feel very blessed. I don't feel like good things have come my way. But wait, God promised me good things. 
Therefore, maybe I can birth these good things myself. I mean, this idea of waiting on God to produce, come through, and birth in me what I want. Uh, you know, why wait when I can pull this off? And oftentimes, that gets us into relational trouble. So the gal sees the guy, the guy sees the gal, and you envision in each other's company a better lifestyle, you know, filling the void, meeting the needs. And it's not, not, not always relational. Sometimes it's financial, vocational, whatever it is. And we simply just want to help God come into his own. He's a blesser of his people. I don't feel very blessed. I feel, I feel empty. Maybe I can fill the void my way. And then if we're honest, we'll say, good night. Now that I've done that, I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life dealing with the consequences of my scheme, which was outside of God's will. By the way, this might be a good definition of faith. Faith is waiting on God, not scheming against God. It's not a theologically profound definition, but uh, maybe that's a good one. Faith is waiting. See, here's the deal. We believers are more prone to go to war for God, more prone to do works for God uh, than we are to wait on God. Uh, because the disciplines of the Christian life are difficult, but perhaps the most difficult is this one, wait on God to bless me, to take care of our needs. And so we father, we birth things. I don't mean a literal child. I mean this metaphorically. We birth things that we think will improve our lot in life, whether they comply with the will of God or not. So that's sort of what's about to happen in this text. And you'll see it doesn't work out very well for anyone. So here we go. Let's begin verse 1. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Now, how did they get to get Hagar? Earlier on in Genesis, we read there was a famine in the land. Abram took things into his own hands again, decided to take his wife and go south, out of the land of promise into the land of Egypt to get food. On the way, he says to her, uh, she being apparently a good-looking woman, you're so good-looking that the Egyptians will be attracted to you. I need you to help me out here, says he to her. If they find out we're married, you're my wife, I'm your husband, to get access to you, all they have to do is dispose of me. And that would, like, ruin my day. So... Can you sort of help me? I'm asking you a little thing. A lie? <laughs> it depends. I'm not a lie. It's just a little helpful deal. Can you tell them, we're not husband and wife, we're brother and sister. Would that be cool? So that's the plan. So they go to Egypt. And people are attracted to her. And she's talking about, he's my brother. I'm his sister. Well, God is very disturbed with this because Abram is supposed to be the line of promise. Line of promised Messiah, Abram and Sarah. We can't have her being in relations with somebody else in Egypt. You see what I mean? So God intervenes and kind of messes with Pharaoh a little bit, disturbs him. Pharaoh gets mad. Pharaoh's the leader of Egypt. And he understandably 
ticked off. He goes to Abram and says, what is up with this? Why are you playing me? Why didn't you tell me what was, you put me at risk. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? You know, can I tell you something? It is a bad deal when somebody outside of a covenant with God rebukes somebody inside a covenant with God. In other words, it is a bad deal when an unsaved person has to point out the misbehavior on the part of a saved person. Don't do that. We're supposed to have higher standards. Anyway, that's what happens. So Pharaoh says, you need to like leave town, lickety split. And, uh, you know, just to show you a good faith effort, I'm going to give you stuff. Lots of stuff. Just take, take, take all this stuff and just go. So we read in Genesis 12 verse 16, therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and, here we go, male and female servants. Hey Charlie, come, come here. Come sit here. Do you mind folks? These, the, the trouble, you gotta stay awake in these seats. That's the only problem. No, no, I, I know. Good to see you guys. Thank you. And you have not disrupted the class in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I'm messing with my Italian friend here. They were, they were serving, I think, in the hospitality room. Thanks for doing that, by the way. I suppose they think it gives them permission to be late. <laughs> okay. So... Um, This is how they came into possession of Hagar. Pharaoh gave a person away. Property. She was my property, now she's your property. And this is very likely. This is how Hagar came to be the slave of her mistress, Sarah, just to let you know. So then I was studying this text. And I was thinking, I shouldn't have to study this text. Because, you know, this is supposed to be Brother Chuck Sunday to teach. I'm just saying... Somebody cares about you and is here. Somebody's carrying the load. Somebody is studying the Bible instead of watching American Idol reruns. I'm the man. Uh, so anyway, I was studying this text because I had to because of the wonderful day today. Have you been to church yet? Pretty cool day. 48th anniversary of the church, 48th anniversary of the best pastor ever. I've never met a pastor with more of a pastor's heart than our pastor. Not perfect, uh-uh-uh, but the pastor with the best pastor's heart I've ever met. And uh, I have the privilege of being on his staff, and what you see is, is who he is. There's no, he's the real deal. So I think we are blessed as a church from the top down. See, as the leader of the church is, so goes the church. Because of his rock-solid stability, we're a stable church. I attribute it to him. The rest of us follow suit, but I attribute it to But anyway, what a great day to celebrate 48 magnificent years. And Someone told me it was their 50th wedding anniversary today. 51st today. Wow, what a special day for crying out loud for Bethel and Dr. Morgan. Really, really great. Anyway, so Chuck was there to make the presentation. Did you see? Oh, my goodness. Striking, wasn't it? It's going to be in, the, in our lobby and will, uh, as it should be. He's, he's not someone who looks for these kinds of things, but too bad. We need to have this recognition of the person God has used to bring us to this point. Anyway, 
Uh, so I was studying the text. That's what it was. I was complaining that I was having to study this week. So I found this passage in Hebrews 6.12, which explains to me a little bit. Tell me if you, if you think my thinking is right. Why God didn't just give them the baby right away? Look, he makes the promise in Genesis 12, right? He reaffirms it like a million times. You're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. Sarah's going to have a son. You, you, you're going to be parents. Why didn't he just deliver the goods? Isaac, like right away. It's 10 years now, no Isaac. And, and if you do the chronology, it's like over 20 years before Isaac comes around. So what is up with this? So I found this in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. Therefore, uh, there was born even of one man. And the writer of Hebrews, whoever it is, is referring to Abraham. There was one man. And him as good as dead. Not dead, but as good as dead at that. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number. And innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. The writer of Hebrews says from one man, biologically as good as dead, came all of these people. And then I suddenly realized, based on this phrase, as good as dead, why God waited. God waited to give Isaac until the point when there would be no possibility of Sarah producing a child, very barren, like barren to the max, and uh Abram, God waited until he was as good as dead as far as his capacity to produce a child so that the child promised would be attributable to nothing and no one but Almighty God. Because we can't take credit for the good things that have been birthed in us. We can't say, I go to church, I pray, I read the Bible, I give. These are all good things. But we can't attribute what God has birthed in us to that. The new life he has birthed in us is due to one thing, his goodness and his grace. Folks, we were as good as spiritually dead when God birthed a a faith recognition of his son, So that new life was birthed in us. So I was thinking, that's why God probably delayed. Then I saw this. I was studying some more. Um, Many, if not most, of the women who bore children in the line of promise experienced a period of barrenness. So first of all, again, to clarify line of promise, I mean the a line of descent from which the promised Messiah, Jesus, would ultimately come. We happen to know it's Abram, Abraham, then Isaac, that line, then Jacob, and on, it narrows down until we can see that Jesus is the only one who fulfills the prerequisites for the promised Messiah. So the line of promise means the uh, the line from which the Messiah would come. Women in that line often had a period of barrenness. For instance, Sarah we're reading about now. She was barren, though ultimately birthed Isaac. Next, Rebecca also experienced barrenness until she birthed Jacob. Then Rachel also experienced barrenness until she birthed Joseph. It's as if God is saying, I'm doing this on purpose. I don't want you, anybody, to think you ushered in anything 
Good. The line of promise, the child of promise, the promised Messiah is from me. My sovereignty, my goodness, my grace, my recognition of your need. You didn't do this. You can't take credit for it. The whole salvation plan was birthed by me, God says. These ladies were as good as dead biologically. What was produced from them was due to me. I wonder if that's what God was up to. I think so. Anyway, in verse 2, Sarai said to Abram, here's the scheme. Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. You know what she does in that statement? She acknowledges two things, the presence of God and the power of God. She neglects a third, the goodness of God. (laughs) She knows that God has prevented this, but she is not able to attribute good motives to him. You know what she does? She sees the transcendence of God. He's big, he's powerful, he's the great beyond, but she doesn't see the nearness of God. Do you? Most people who know something of God err in this direction. They know of God being powerful and mighty, but they don't know him as the God who cares, who's compassionate, who's kind, who does all things for the good. So Sarah at this time knows of God in his raw power, but she doesn't see his raw power to be tempered by his kind and compassionate heart. She just sees this God preventing, keeping her from something which would satisfy her and be so meaningful. She can only see him, therefore, being strong but not good. No, folks, he's both. He's strong and he's good. And we have to know him both ways. So she says, God's prevented me. So here's the proposal to her husband. Please go into my maid, which is a uh, uh, proper way of expressing an invitation uh, by Sarah for her husband to have relations with Hagar. Perhaps, she said, I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, this seems a little weird, does it not? Somewhat unusual. But it wasn't in the day. In fact, it was culturally acceptable, legally permissible. We know this from the Code of Hammurabi and from the Nuzi texts, ancient archaeological records of cultural practices. In the day, if a woman, a wife, could not provide her husband with children... She was permitted, culturally, legally, to provide her husband either with a concubine or a female slave in the hope that maybe a child would be born that way. If a child was, according to the culture of the day, the child would belong to the wife, the first wife, not the concubine, not the female slave. She, the wife, would have full access, full rights and privileges to the baby burst through someone who essentially was a surrogate, a vehicle, who would have no rights. Now, this leads me to this. Though this was culturally acceptable, surely it's not biblically acceptable, which tells me something about the Bible. It records many things it doesn't condone 
where seeing a record of a behavior, but it is not condoned. So be careful. Cultural practices, do you know, are not given by God. Cultural practices originate with the sinful people who comprise the culture. You know what God does about it? He's intent on redeeming the members of the culture so that the cultural practices change. You are a redeemed member of this culture. Your highest authority is not the Constitution of the United States, though I pay respect to it and served in two branches of the military uh, to support it. Don't misunderstand. My Constitution and yours as citizens of heaven is not the Constitution of the United States of America. It's the Bible, meaning if I'm required as an American to do something, albeit culturally and legally acceptable, but which is contrary to the will of God, I must obey God rather than man. So, for instance, abortion is legal in our land. It's a cultural practice, but that doesn't make it biblically permissible. Same-sex marriage is increasingly being legalized in states uh, across America and in most of the nations of the world. Though it is culturally increasingly acceptable and legal for sure, um, it is not biblically acceptable. And, and, and I have to make choices, as do you, to opt for what pleases God, not what is, cult, what is culturally acceptable. Now, this is not academic. We're going to be confronted with these things more and more. We're going to be dragged into court. It's happening already. We're going to lose nonprofit status. We're going to do all kinds of mandates are going to be put upon us to do that, which the culture finds acceptable in spite of the fact God finds it unacceptable. Well, what do we do then? We must obey God rather than man. So, so Sarah's engaged in a practice which was prevalent in the day, but which is absolutely contrary to the will of God. The poor lady was desperate, folks. Let's be a little sympathetic. She was desperate. God did not seem to be coming through for her. So she decided to come up with a plan of her own. Her faith is wavering, as is Abram's at this time, because the text says he listened to the voice of Sarai. Some foolish biblicists would take this to be a broad mandate for the husband not to listen to his wife. Those are people who don't know what they're talking about. Any husband who's not listening to his wife is not loving his wife the way Christ loved the church. For crying out loud, your wife, man, is your number one counselor. But if her counselor is contrary to the counsel of God, you must obey God rather than your wife. Now, some of us guys, let's be honest, bow passively to the um, directives of our wives for the sake of domestic tranquility. Guys, man up. Stop being a wimp. You're supposed to be the spiritual lead. So am I. Lovingly. No autocratic imposition. That's not biblical love. That's not manly love. That is dictatorial imposition of authority. No, you lovingly look your wife in the eye and you say, I love you, but I know this is not what God would have us do at this time. Abraham caved in. He didn't do it. By the way, this happened before, didn't it? Adam pulled the same stunt. All right, so anyway, listen to the voice of Sarah. Now here's what happens, verse 3. 
After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. We're not told specifically how this played out, but you can imagine, Hagar is now with child. Maybe she's beginning to show. Maybe she's just flaunting the profile. Sarah! (laughs) Baby! I, I don't, it's like in your face. Here's the point. Things are not working out very well for Sarah at this point. Now verse five, Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. Is that a little, what? It's your idea. But anyway, you see, she turns it on Abram. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Look, things are not working out for Sarah, verse 4. Things are not working out for Abram, verse 5. Gets worse, verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what's good in your sight. He's bailing, in other words. So Sarai treated her harshly and she fled from her presence. Things are not working out good for Sarai. Things are not working out well for Abram. Things are definitely working out well, definitely not working out well for Hagar. She has to run. By the way, Hagar is not an Egyptian word. You would think it would be because she's an Egyptian lady. It's actually a Hebrew word and it means flight or fleeing, it's likely she was given this name so as to represent her plight here. She's running from the slave owner, her mistress, Sarah. But there's hope, verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord, remember we mentioned Genesis to be the book of beginnings and firsts. This is the first mention of the angel of the Lord in the Bible. Could be an angel, could be a different personage. We'll talk about it in a little while. For now, just recognize the angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, she's pregnant now, found her by a spring of water. It's in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. You know where she's going? Egypt. I mean, she can't hang out with Abram and Sarah anymore because who knows what Sarah is doing to her. We don't know what form of oppression and abuse is being imposed upon her. I don't think she's too thrilled about going back home because the political leader there sold her off. You talk about a lady caught between a rock and a hard place for crying out loud. What in the world is she going to do? And so she's there and possibly about to die. Even though there's a spring of water here, she still has to make the journey to Egypt. It's desert, folks. She's going through the Sinai Peninsula at this time. She's going to run out of food and water. She's pregnant. So much for prenatal care, for crying out loud. She has no visible means of support. Can you appreciate her plight? The angel of the Lord says to her in verse 8, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. That's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? I don't get all this. You know, I find out God is not really in the business of renovating all of the structures of society. 
He's really in the business of changing the members of society, not so much its institutions yet. I didn't say he condones them. I just said he's not striking out of the institutions. He's trying to win us who created the evil institutions. But I think there's another reason why he told Hagar to go back. Hagar, an Egyptian slave woman, is going to go back and uh, give a theology lesson to Abram and Sarai. They should have known but we'll know better when they hear from her. She's about to have a supernatural encounter with Almighty God that they neglected. She's about to go back because the angel of the Lord told her to, to testify of her wilderness experience. You'll see how this unfolds. So verse 10, Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. Um. Hagar, you need to go back to be under the authority, yes, of Sarai. But Hagar, I need to tell you something. You have a future and a hope. Don't ask me how I can know your future. I can. I see your future. Your present is going to be a challenge. But I'm telling you of your future. Uh, Hagar, you're going to be the mother of a lot of people descendants will multiply from you beyond your ability to count. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. The angel of the Lord says you must designate the child Ishmael. It means God Here's here is a slave woman disenfranchised by everybody in the middle of nowheresville on the road to nowhere from nowhere. And she is met by the angel of the Lord who persuades her. God hears her heart cry even before she verbalized any words. God sees her. She's not junk. God sees her worth. God here. Name this baby Ishmael. And then there's a description of this man and the peoples who will come from him in verse 12. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Whoa. That doesn't sound like a very complimentary thing to say. What is up with that? So it is a possibility. Uh, If you have a donkey in the desert, in the wilderness... That's like a valuable commodity. I mean, the donkey is a burden bearer. Donkey is sort of considered by Arab peoples even today uh, in desert uh, areas a noble beast of burden. So maybe that's kind of the reference. But then it gets a little more dicey. It says his hand will be against everyone. So I, I don't know what we can make. it. That doesn't sound very complimentary. And everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. So Ishmael's brothers are the guys who came from Isaac, yet to be born. You know, there's going to be Ishmael and Isaac. This says Ishmael and the peoples who come from him are going to live to the east of Isaac and his people and be at odds with them. What's the people group uh, in this day to the east 
of the Israelites, their Arab peoples. That would be modern-day countries like Jordan and Saudi Arabia and Yemen and all the rest. Is this a reflection on all Arab people? Absolutely not. However, there are people group national tendencies which seems seem historically to have played out in a way that's consistent with this. Now, I'm not telling you this as a Jewish guy. I'm reading the text. Arab nations, as a general rule, value freedom. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Independence. Um, they're almost like Texans. Don't fence me in. Arab peoples are just, they, they don't like bounds, uh, real estate boundaries, and, and, and they like to be on the move. This is not a criticism. I don't mean anything negatively at all. I'm just trying to tell you, this seems to characterize Arab peoples down to this very day. And then also this. Uh, Ishmael and his descendants to this very day have been at odds with Isaac and his descendants. Who are Ishmael's descendants? Arab peoples. Who are Isaac's descendants? Jewish peoples. What's going on in the world today? Antagonism between Arab people and Jewish people. Am I explaining the current crisis in the Middle East on the basis of something way back in Genesis 16? Yes, I am. Folks, can you see the complications of us taking matters into our own hand? Can you see what happens when we don't wait on God and we scheme in ways to meet our own needs? Can you see how a good God will let us have our way as a learning vehicle? You say, well, God, why didn't you just let Hagar and the baby in her die in the wilderness? And that would have covered it up. Because God loves us too much to keep us from having to live through the consequences of our bad decisions. I hope Genesis 16 helps me to be a better decision maker, and I hope it helps you. I don't want to uh, do the things these did because it will affect the next generation, my family, people groups. You know this whole deal, if it feels good, do it. You're your own person. That, is, that, that flies in the face of reality. You cannot live in God's world and mock him. There's nothing done in secret. He sees in the darkness for crying out loud. My uh, um, interest in pleasing myself, which I think is reserved to me as an adult, is not the knee bone's connected to the whatever bone. We are connected for crying out loud. Uh, the pollution we ought to worry about is not environmental pollution as in the physical world. It's spiritual pollution. This is why Jesus came to suffer as excruciatingly as he did for sin. It's because of the ramifications of sin. When I sin, it affects you. How? I don't know. It's just, folks, the anxious longing of creation groans for the revealing of the sons of man. The environment is polluted not by me having a gas-guzzling SUV. That's not the big deal. It's by me corrupting it through my sin. There's nothing done in private. There's no such thing as two consenting adults can do what they want to do and get off scot-free. Are you kidding me? Since are passed on from generation to generation. I'm checking it out here in Genesis 16. We're dealing with the bad news today in the Middle East because of what these two people did in Genesis chapter 16. You know who these two people are? Us! We're in the same category of homo sapiens. For crying out loud, we're human beings. This is our tendency. God, you said I should be happy and healthy and well, have the abundant life. Well, doggone it, you're kind of slow on the draw. I'll make myself happy. 
didn't work out for any of these people. It's not going to work out for us. Listen to me. It is God's will for us to be well. But we have to do God's will God's way. And when we don't do God's will God's way, it just messes things up like crazy. Well, anyway, that's what you get in verse 12. So here's what happened. Later on, Isaac is born at the right time from God's point of view. Well, Sarah can't take the heat. It's like the house gets small. You've got Isaac and Ishmael now in the house. And it appears Sarah thought, maybe it's real, maybe she imagined it because she's like sensitive. Sarah got this deal. You know, Ishmael's, he's just mocking us. You know, he's your son. He's not mine. You know, this kind of deal. And uh, there's like no room for my boy and, Ish- and Hagar's son. So you got to do something, Abram. This is recorded. Genesis chapter 21. We'll get there maybe eventually some year. <laughs> Genesis 21, verse 9 and on. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Hagar was his son. Now get this, real important, Genesis 21, verse 12. But God said to Abram, God said to Abram, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. Get this, for through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. I did not write this. That's the Bible. God said, not through Ishmael, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. The line of promise is being defined. Abraham, Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. The Arab nations come through Ishmael and Esau. That is not the line of promise. That's not the line of blessing. It's through, I didn't say this, through Isaac your descendants shall be named. Now I'm going to tell you something. Islamic peoples do not hold to this, as is no surprise to you. In fact, the Quran teaches that Ishmael is the child of promise, not Isaac. So, there comes a time when God said to Abraham, "Um, I want you to offer to me your son. Take him to Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah. Some of you have been there. Others of you have seen pictures of it. On it is positioned a beautiful architectural feature which predominates the panorama of Jerusalem today. It's called the Dome of the Rock, a golden-domed Islamic shrine. It's actually not a mosque. It's a shrine marking the place where Islamic people believe Mohammed, in a dream, was resurrected to heaven on a horse named Barak. I'm just telling you, it's the name of the horse. I'm just, so, uh, so the Bible says, Abram, take Isaac there. Remember that whole incident? I think it's in like Genesis 22 or something. We'll get there maybe someday. Um, but the Quran says, no, no, no. God did not tell Abram to bring Isaac there. He told Abram to offer Ishmael there. How'd that happen? Um, uh, Mohammed, who uh, 
lived in the 7th century AD, 7th century, um, believed that the Jews and the Christians are a forsaken people. Uh, that God, they're called the people of the book. The Jews, the old book, Old Testament. Christians, the new book, New Testament. But Muhammad, Islam, teaches that both the Jews and the Christians have let God down, have not kept his word, have rejected God. Therefore, he's rejected them, both the Jews and the Christians. The people of the book have been replaced by followers of Allah, by those who submit to Allah. That's what Islam means. It's an Arabic word. It means submission. If you submit to Allah and Muhammad as his great prophet, you now become a Muslim person. Did you know that? You, that's your public confession, and you're now a Muslim person. And, and, and so it isn't about Isaac, Jacob, and all these people. It's about Ishmael and Esau. Now, that does, this does not mean every Arab person is a Muslim. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean every Muslim is an Arab. It just means Islam has really, really influenced the Arab world perhaps more than any other people group. So many, many Arab peoples adhere to Islam. Not all, but, but many, many, many. And I, I showed you this, or I told you this before, I'll tell you again. Islam demonstrates even sub, symbolically its supremacy over Judaism and Christianity in its architecture. So this, the building I mentioned to you, the Dome of the Rock, it's really, really high. It's the highest feature in Jerusalem. Below it is a holy site for the Jews, the Western Wall, or we call it the Wailing Wall. Jews are down below. And down the block is a holy site for Christians called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, thought by some to be the place of the crucifixion, resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Islam says, that's right, the Jews have a holy site down below. The Christians have a holy site down the block. We are above both the Jews and the Christians. So the placement of the Dome of the Rock is absolutely deliberate. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, um, when the Dome of the Rock was constructed, um, by the way, it's not gold, it's aluminum and coated with some kind of gold plate. When it was constructed, Islamic leaders hired Christian architects to build it. I don't know if you knew this. You know why? They wanted a dome fashioned. And a dome at that point was not ever a feature in Islamic architecture, but it was in Byzantine Christian architecture. They sent Christian architects to the dome on the church known as the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It was built by Helena, mother of Constantine. It's a whole story for another day. But anyway, it has a dome on it. They took the measurements of the dome over the church, and they made the dome on the Dome of the Rock higher and bigger than the dome on the church reputed to be the place where the Lord was crucified and resurrected. So as to make the statement architecturally, we are supreme. We have superseded your faith experiences. You people of the book have been rejected by God. Now only worshipers of Allah 
and the chief prophet Muhammad are in good stead with God. So that's sort of what's happened. When people say, you know, all religions are the same, those are people who don't know what the heck they're talking about. They're not the same. This is just small potatoes, but folks, is it Isaac or is it Ishmael? The Bible says Isaac, the Quran says Ishmael. Make your choice. Well, anyway, eventually, still, God blesses Ishmael. Why? Because even though his is not the line of the promised Messiah, he's still the son of Abraham. And so it says in Genesis 21:13, and of the son of the maid, I'll make a nation also because he is your Abraham. He is your descendant. And if you read in Genesis 25, verses 13 and on, we find out Ishmael fathered 12 sons and their descendants are the ones who fathered, produced Arab peoples who to this day are in a hostile relationship, mostly to the east of uh, the Jews in Israel. The international situation explained right here, Genesis 16. Now verse 13, then she called the name of the Lord, Hagar, called the name of the Lord. Earlier, the angel of the Lord said, you will call your child Ishmael. Now we have a second naming. The first naming is of her child by the angel of the Lord. This second naming of God is by Hagar herself. Think about it. The ramifications. An Egyptian slave woman is about to assign a name to God. Look, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? The angel of the Lord said, your son shall be called God hears. Hagar said, I shall call the Lord and God sees. Folks from an Egyptian, from a black Egyptian, single, disenfranchised, uh, pregnant woman, Without a husband who cares, we get some of the most profound theology in all the Bible. I think Hagar is one of the unsung heroines of our faith. You know what she says? I met the God who hears. I met the God who sees. I had a personal experience with him and lived to tell about it. I am a nobody in the eyes of society, but almighty God thinks I'm a somebody. God met me, not in the church, not in the synagogue, and not in the mosque. God met me in the wilderness. I'm between a rock and a hard place. I can't go back and I can't go ahead. I'm stalled out here. I'll probably die, so too the baby with me. God heard my heart cry. I couldn't even attach words to the travail of my soul. But he heard me before I said a word. And he sees my plight. I am alone. But God sees me. Folks, that's why the angel says, angel of the Lord, go back. Because Abram, the father of the Jews, and Sarah, the mother of the child of promise, had to learn from a black Egyptian slave woman. They had to learn about who God is. He hears. He sees. And you want to know something? (laughs) Abram is going to name the child what he's supposed to be named Ishmael. You'll see in a second. And every time he calls out to that little boy, Ishmael, Ishmael, he's going to be rebuked in his spirit because Ishmael means God hears. And Abram should have known this. 
He should have said, Sarah, I know you're in travail and I know you're going through a very difficult time, but God sees and Ishmael, God hears. Instead, they forgot about that. But God revealed himself to be the God who sees and the God who hears to Hagar. Folks, our God confounds our ideas. He goes against the strictures of society. He doesn't play by the hierarchical rules of politics and socioeconomic stuff and skin color and gender. He doesn't play like that. He says, I see a slave woman who nobody else valued. I see her in the desert. And she will be the greatest theologian of her day. She will go back and tell the people of promise God sees and God hears. Now, by the way, this angel of the Lord, was he an angel? Maybe. Maybe more. This woman refers to him as the Lord. Look, verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. I wonder if she has recognized what we can call a pre-incarnate appearance of none other than the Lord Jesus. Look at here. Some people mistakenly think this Jesus came into existence at the Christmas event in Bethlehem. He was birthed. Hang on just a second. Uh, If he's God, he didn't have a beginning. He always was. He only became enfleshed when he was born as a baby. But he existed before that because God has no beginning nor any end. If this is the case, what did he do? In his pre-existent state. Well, maybe here's one thing. Maybe he heard and saw an Egyptian slave woman about ready to die and give up on life. Because everyone else gave up on her in the desert. I think it's a reference to the Lord Jesus. It's called a Christophany. A Christophany. And you see many of them in the Bible. A Christophany is an appearance of the Lord Jesus before he appeared as a babe in Bethlehem. This is the first Christophany, one of the first Christophany in the Bible. And who experienced it? Hagar. Pretty amazing to me. So, uh, verse 14, Therefore the well was called Be'er L'chairo'i. It is uh, between Kadesh and Barat. It means literally, well of the living one who sees. Hagar named it that. This is the well. She marked the place. This is the well of the living one who sees. <clears throat> uh, some of the grandest theology in all of scripture. Where is it located? We don't know for sure. Probably. Um, southwest of Beersheba. Beersheba. Some of you have been there. It's in the Negev Desert. Probably about 12 miles from a place called Kadesh Barnea. On the way to Egypt. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son. Here it is, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Ishmael, Ishmael, God here, God here. Oh, Sarah, we should have known this. We should have remembered. God hears, God hears. Now we remember. Then it says in verse 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. I'll tell you something. The lesson uh, was clear to Sarah, Sarai, to Um, Abram to Hagar to the ancient Israelites, and I hope it's clear to we Christians, down to this um, very day. Uh, Ours is to trust God. 
to trust in his promises and to wait for their fulfillment. And I tell you this, not all of God's promises are going to be fulfilled in this life. I don't like that. Neither do you. I'm going to be, uh, how old am I going to be? I'm going to be 65. Holy moly. So I'm going to be 65. So, and when, when the, you get close to that, you forget how old you're going to be. So, so I think it's 65. So if, if I live healthy or whatever, what's, the, what's the, our life expectancy today? Anybody know? 80-something? 85? Well, let's say 85. So I've got 20 years to go, let's say, if, if something else doesn't happen. Oh, my goodness. I've got to wait like 20 years for God to come through with all this stuff when I could just make stuff happen myself? You see the battle? Can you see it? Am I going to trust God to fulfill his promises to me at the right time? Or am I going to father children? Bring in birth, outcomes that will please me in advance of God's timing. I don't want to do it. But I'm prone to it. The hardest discipline for the Christian is waiting on God. He's made promises. He won't break them. But his timing is perfect. Father knows best. Folks, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the lives of the people uh, in this particular room. Some of you wouldn't even dare share it with the rest of us, understandably. You don't have to. Ishmael. God hears. God sees. You may feel alone, but you are not alone. You may be mistreated, abused, exploited, and oppressed, just as Hagar was. But God knows what's going on. Wait on him. Wait for him to elevate your position. Wait for him to bring you from the wilderness into your place. Wait on him to fulfill his promises to you. Try, try to resist the temptation of doing things your way to improve your lot in life outside of the will of God. That's what I'm saying. Outside of the will of God. We have an event here that persuades us when people try to do things their way outside the will of God, it doesn't work out neither for them nor for the world. The whole world has been affected by what happened in Genesis chapter 16 down to this very day. Wait on God so that even at the point when you are as good as dead, as far as bringing about something meaningful to you, you can see God come through. And that will give you some basis upon which you can praise him forever. See, that's what we'll be doing in eternity. You don't think Hagar is going to be there? Praising God. Let him give you something to praise him for. Give you something to do in eternity. Oh, God, I was as good as dead. All hope was gone. And boom, right at the right time, you birthed in me exactly what I needed to fill the void in my life, to make me healthy, to make me whole, to bring me forth. It's a tough battle for us as Christians. Wait on God. Christian, you know, that means trust. That means trust Almighty God. To have our best interests at heart. Trust his timing. Trust him to do what's right. It's not all going to be fulfilled this side, this side of heaven. We're passing through. 
It's a wilderness just like Hagar's. We're not in our place of promise, neither was she. Isn't it grand to see how God met her in the wilderness, in the desert? He's the same for us. He'll meet us in our particular wilderness. Don't give up hope yet, but don't put hope in your own creative schemes to improve your lot. If I just do this, if I just tweak that, if I just, if I, if I, everyone's doing it. It's not illegal, but is it God's way? If it's not God's way, we do the same thing Abram and Sarah did. We don't want to do that. Lord Jesus, the reason we bow before you is because you are high and lifted up. Not Judaism, not church stuff, not Islam. You are high and lifted up. You are the most high God. And yet, you still stooped, condescended, so as to connect with us. As you appeared to Hagar, so too... You have extended yourself to us, birthed, grown, crucified, resurrected. Oh, God, all these things in an enfleshed body to make contact with those in physical bodies. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the God who hears and the God who sees all that we're going through individually in our wilderness journey. Thank you for having a plan for us. It's for welfare. It is not for calamity. It's to give us, as with Hagar, a future and a hope. Oh, God, help us to practice the discipline of waiting on you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Lord willing, next week, Dr. Ross Anderson.